CQD, CQD, this is Titanic. CQD, CQD, this is Titanic. Position 41.44 north, 50.24 west. CQD, CQD, this is Titanic. Titanic, this is Carpathia. Oh man, we are 58 miles off. The Olympic is trying to reach you. Can you hear him? Carpathia to Titanic, putting about and heading for you. Expect to arrive in four hours. Frankfurt to Titanic, what is the we matter? Are coming as fast as we can. Mount Temple to all ships. CQD, Titanic CQD require assistance. SOS. Corrected position. Baltic, this is Titanic. Captain Smith says to have all your lifeboats ready. We do not have enough. Olympic to Titanic. Olympic to Titanic. Who has struck an iceberg? Who? Cape Race to Titanic. Olympic Virginia is coming to our assistance. Signal is jammed. Cape Race, has anybody heard from the California? Stop talking. Repeat, Olympic to all ships. Stop talking. Titanic. CQD, CQD, SOS, SOS, this is Titanic. We are sinking fast. Passengers being put into lifeboats. CQD, CQD, SOS, SOS, this is Titanic. Virginian to Titanic, we can no longer read you. Have you lost power? You may need to use your emergency backup. Virginian to Titanic, do you read? During the overnight hours of April 14th into April 15th, a series of dots and dashes rang out as Titanic's wireless operator John Jack Phillips called out into the void of night for help. Across the wires, sparks flew. It was chaos. Ships answered and typed messages over each other, jamming the signal as Titanic slowly lost power. At one point, the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, called out for other ships to clear the line, but she was too far to help and listened helplessly. It seems as if every ship responded to Jack's pleas, except for the only ship that was even remotely close enough to help. Around the time these last messages were sent out, Charles Lightoller was fighting for his life as water pinned him against the ship's hull. A pocket watch he wore that night was crushed in the ensuing chaos, its hands frozen at 2.19 a.m. Lytola would miraculously survive the sinking by taking control of an overturned lifeboat. Some 30 people survived by listening to his commands, using balance and core strength to stop the boat from flipping or sinking. He bellowed commands across the night, lean left, lean right. His calm demeanor saved several, but do not be fooled. Lytoler was terrified. It was the closest to death he had ever been.
as he tells it, bravery was never the absence of fear. It was surviving in spite of it. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Charles Leitler, Episode 2. After many a misadventure at sea, Charles Leitler signed on to work for the White Star Line in 1900. He was initially assigned to the RMS Medic, but the poor sailor barely had, quote, half a uniform. But before you inquire as to which half, let's just say the cattle ship he had previously worked on had ruined most of his other clothing. He described the White Star Line as sterile. The ships were run with military-like precision, and it took the young man a significant amount of time to adjust. But Lights was still free-spirited and mischievous, and it was a trait he carried with him. One could argue he would prove a bad influence on his shipmates. One particular incident proved that Lights had never fully matured out of his prankster ways. Aboard the RMS Medic during a run to Australia, Lights and a few of his colleagues decided to prank the land down under. England, and by proxy Australia, were currently engaged in the Second Boer War. Citing a crazy patriotism and the fact that he found messing with Australians to be highly entertaining, Lights and his friends decided to prank those in Sydney Harbour with a one-gun salute. In shark-infested waters, Lightler and company set off with a Boer flag to Fort Denison. To fill in the blanks, allow me to read this newspaper article from Sydney, 1900. The Sydney Morning Herald, Friday, the 12th of October, 1900. The report sent to the police the other day that someone had fired a gun at Fort Denison has not yet been cleared up. The charge of the island is in the hands of the Navigation Department. Last Saturday morning, the Superintendent of Navigation, Captain Edie, received a report from the caretaker of the island in which it stated that a charge had been fired from a gun on top of the turret early that morning. The matter was placed in the hands of the police who have since been investigating the affair. The joke was accentuated by a piece of painted calico being left on the place, said Captain Edie. I've never seen a boar flag, so I can't say whether it was like one or not, but in order to get the blank charge into the gun and fire, the man, I should think, must have climbed up the lightning conductor. Nobody was hurt. At best, it was foolish and mad-brained business. That night, the crew had three minutes for Lytoler to scale the ford and set off the gun. Two of his other shipmates hoisted the boar colors, and then they ran and giggled all the way back to the medic. They were never caught by Australian authorities, but the White Star Line figured out who had done the deed pretty quickly. Called on the carpet by the Marine superintendent, Lytola received a harsh scolding. He had offered to tender his resignation, placing a letter on his desk, but in the middle of the dressing down, the superintendent began laughing uncontrollably. He ripped up the letter and told Lytoler to get back to his ship. Lytoler would rotate on and off the medic for quite some time. For a brief time after the incident, they did take him off the Australia route, though. Just in case. It was on one particular run of the ship that Lights ended up sweeping a woman off her feet. Quite literally. Iowa Sylviana Zila Holly Wilson, 
Sylvia was a petite, pretty brunette sailing from the UK to her home of Australia. She had spent time in the UK with her aunt and was returning home. She had been studying music and going to many cricket matches where she had been adopted as sort of a mascot by the team. The young lady had been born with a club foot. And though her family had been worried that it would affect her ability to find a husband, she pish-poshed this idea and simply ignored the concern. Sylvia established herself as an independent woman and traveled around the world. She did find that her foot did cause sea travel to be quite precarious. She often struggled to walk on boats without pitching forward, and it was one misstep that sent her flying into the arms of Charles Lightoller. The meet-cue ended with him carrying her up a flight of stairs and also ended with him noting when she typically went for breakfast or other meals so that he could be around to help carry her. After a few days, his shipmates teased him and told him to marry the girl that he had been constantly carrying around the ship. Yes, they had noticed. Never one to turn down a dare, Lightoller just went to Sylvia and asked her if she would marry him. Presumably, he wanted to carry her around for the rest of their lives. They docked in Sydney, got married, and she traveled back to England as his wife. Now married, and by all reports very much in love, Lightoller returned to the Atlantic service to New York. He was on board mail ships, and it was here that Lightoller met and served with Captain Edward J. Smith. The soft-spoken captain with a gruff appearance would become something of a father figure for Lightoller. It's from the RMS Majestic that lights would then transfer to the Oceanic. For all his glowing reviews of the Titanic, the Oceanic, you might be surprised to learn, is actually Lightoller's favorite ship. In its time, it was a marvel, a crew of 400 with room for a thousand passengers and exquisite first-class accommodations. He was also bringing home exceptionally good money, a single trip on the Oceanic paid what he had previously made in a year. Lights was named Officer of the Watch and was frequently on the bridge of the ship. The Oceanic was under the watchful eye of Captain John G. Cameron, a serious sort of man who would quiz his sailors and mock them if they made mistakes or answered incorrectly. After his experiences under Captain Bully Waters, however, Lightoller was not easily intimidated. Once, after losing control of the will... Lightoller was shocked to see that Cameron had been watching. What the hell do you think you're doing, sir? Cameron bellowed. I'm sorry, sir, I slipped. Slipped? I wish you'd broken your damned neck as you nearly broke mine, Cameron said. But Cameron proved to be all bark, and Lights stayed on the Oceanic for years, ending his run as second officer. The White Star Line was growing, and it was shortly after this that Lightoller was asked to join the crew of the White Star Line's newest ship, the RMS Titanic. Initially, Lightoller was named First Officer, alongside Chief Officer William Murdoch and Captain E.J. Smith. Second Officer was a man named David Blair. The crew was to join the ship in Belfast for sea trials, and Lights was immediately smitten with the ship's speed and grace and size. It is difficult to convey any idea of the size of a ship like the Titanic when you could actually walk miles along decks and passages covering different ground the entire time, he wrote. 
Prior to its maiden voyage, the White Star Line decided to shuffle the crew, bringing on the Olympics Henry Wilde as chief officer. Murdoch was shifted to first officer and Lytoller, once again, was named second officer, a slight demotion. And luckily for him, second officer David Blair was taken off the roster completely. Unbeknownst to everyone, Blair carried off a set of keys that unlocked the cabinets that contained binoculars for the lookouts. The crew spent the days preparing for the voyage, testing lifeboats and safety equipment, and testing the Titanic's sea legs. All present-day safety standards were met on board. Passengers arrived in Southampton on April 10th, and the crew prepared to take the Titanic to sea. At noon... Her horns blared. Passengers ran out to the rails to wave to the folks who came to see the ship off on her maiden voyage. A cameraman filmed. There's grainy footage of them leaving the docks. No one knew. No one knew they were waving 1,500 people to their deaths. As we prepare to dissect the tragedy of the sinking of the RMS Titanic, it's important to address the elephant in the room... And that is the reliability of Charles Lytoller as a witness. After all, he is the reason that it was widely accepted that the ship sank in one piece, despite passionate reports to the contrary proven true by the discovery of the ship's wreckage in the 1980s. Some scholars also question some aspects of Lytoller's testimony and accounts following the aftermath of the wreck. Do I think Charles Lytoller was... Prone to exaggeration, yes, he was a boastful sailor, a young man. But I'm using his account of that night, but will transparently point out when Charles Lytoller was wrong and what extenuating circumstances affected his perceptions. Trauma, grief, these things can color memory and affect eyewitness accounts, but the fact stands, Lytoller's cool demeanor under duress saved multiple lives that fateful night. The Titanic was full of larger-than-life characters and, and several of America's wealthiest men. The roster reads like a who's who of American royalty, Guggenheim, Strauss, Astor, Archibald Butt, a close friend and associate of President Taft, Molly Brown, who history would call unsinkable, though the title could likely be better applied to Lytoller. Ship designer V. Thomas Andrews and White Star Line chairman J. Bruce Ismay also were on board. Accommodations for all classes were exceptional, and the ship made additional stops in Cherbourg, France, and eventually Queenstown, Ireland. After Cherbourg, Lytoller received a knock on his door. What is it? Sir, we have no glasses in the crow's nest. The lookouts were noticeably nervous, but no one could find the glasses. As he had left the ship, prior to its departure, former second officer David Blair had ordered the glasses be taken to his cabin and locked them up. No one knew where they had been locked away, and Blair had the only key. But the ship's Marconi operators were kept abreast of potential dangers as such. Lytoller figured they could just grab glasses for the return voyage out of New York. The ship performed beautifully with no noises whatsoever from its engine. It ran silently, but Lytoller on his bridge duty on April 14th noticed the smell of ice. 
Now, that expression doesn't explicitly mean that ice has an odor, but the nose will pick up on the temperature changes and you'll feel a burning sensation in your nostrils. Lytoller had returned to the bridge after eating and noticed the drop in temperature. His days often consisted of four hours on and eight hours off, and he would also relieve other staffers for breaks. He would take measurements of the sun in the sky to calculate the ship's latitude and longitude. And on that particular April day, wireless reports were pouring in warning of icebergs. In most instances, though, the coordinates were not in the ship's path. At 9.40 p.m., Marconi operator Jack Phillips received the vital message that never made it to the bridge. The message was from the Masaba. Ice report to latitude 42 north to 41.25 north, longitude 49 to long 50 west. Saw many heavy pack ice and great number large icebergs. It was in the ship's path. Almost exactly. Phillips noted the message but became engaged elsewhere. It was just one more message about ice. He put the paper under his elbow on the desk. Lytoller would never see it. Ultimately, it was the ignorance of this message that mitigated a lot of the criminal liability. The messages never made it to Lytoller. Had he known, he wrote, he would have urged more caution, less speed. On his last watch, Lytoller noted the cold in the air. He never saw ice, but his senses were on alert. At 10 p.m., Lytoller was relieved by Murdoch. The pair had worked together many times before, and before swapping posts, they would often stand there, laugh and joke. As they remarked on the ship's speed, Lytoller stated that Murdoch stared into the empty night, pointing out the darkness and the impossibility of differentiating the horizon from the sea. That darkness, they both noted, would make it difficult to see ice. Twenty-two knots. Darkness. It was too calm. Cold, Lytola returned to his room to find some warmth and rest, noting that he was still not used to the cold despite his brief stint in Canada. He would close his eyes to be awakened not long after by the jerk of an engine that never made any noise and the sound of bellowing steam coming angrily from the bowels of the ship. It was twenty until midnight. In the darkness, far too late, the crow's nest bell rings, iceberg right ahead. Murdoch and crew spring into action, hard to starboard. It would not have mattered which direction she turned. They were going too fast. The White Star Line had never called the Titanic unsinkable specifically, but the term had been thrown around in some advertisements. But the bells and whistles of watertight doors could not stop the flow of water too quickly into the decks below. And at that moment, Lytoler was in that strange place between awake and sleep, where a person is both blissfully ignorant and also simultaneously very aware of what is happening around them. The shudder of the otherwise quiet ship caused him to jerk awake, pausing to gather his senses. He opened his door, but the cold air struck him and pushed him back into his room. 
He didn't hear or see any commotion or confusion, but figured he may as well wait in his cabin so he would be easily found. It didn't take long before Fourth Officer Joseph Boxall was rapping on his door. We've struck a berg, sir. Charles dressed, throwing his trousers and a dark navy sweater and his bridge coat over his pajamas for extra warmth. The abrupt wake-up had left him grumpy. Third Officer Pittman exclaimed loudly, Well, we must have hit something! Lytola remarked dryly, Evidently. The ship's designer, Thomas Andrews, had designed the ship with watertight doors on the lower deck. They would close and allow the ship to stay afloat while any water was pumped out. It was genius. Truly a marvel of engineering. Except at most, it would hold the ship afloat with two full compartments. As the ship's hull hit the iceberg and continued going, the iceberg punctured multiple spots in rapid succession. The ship would stay afloat with two compartments full. Six compartments. Six compartments were filling rapidly with water. Andrews and the ship's carpenter went below deck. The decks were in ascending alphabetical order, with A being the top deck. Andrews reported water at F deck. Lightoller said he knew it meant she had taken on a lot of water, but he hadn't grasped the notion that it could possibly sink. Captain Smith checked his inclinometer. The Titanic, in a matter of minutes, had already tilted five degrees starboard. He rubbed his beard and whispered in shock. Oh my God. There was no panic, just stunned silence. Smith turned quietly to Wilde and told him, to begin uncovering lifeboats. Some passengers had begun wandering on deck to see why the engine had stopped. Some even began playing soccer matches with chunks of ice that had landed on board. A lightoller was sent to port side, and then steam started screaming into the air from the boilers, making it virtually impossible to hear. This is where lightoller would make his first fatal mistake. Captain Smith was in a daze, shock and he could scarcely hear the second officer. Hadn't we better get the women and children into boats, sir? Lights yelled, cupping his hand over his mouth. Smith nodded and walked away. With no clarification, Lightoller took this to mean women and children only. The White Star Line had not equipped the Titanic with enough lifeboats, and while that seems counterintuitive. It stems from the mentality that the boat would be able to stay afloat due to the watertight compartments, and the lifeboats could ferry passengers to another ship, return, and pick up more. And despite Smith's quiet and grave demeanor, Lightoller still did not believe she would sink. And so he began only loading women and children. He began sitting the boats afloat severely underloaded. The entire time, passengers asked if the situation was dire, but in an effort to maintain order, he would reply no. It was then, on the horizon, that Lightoller saw lights in the distance. There was a ship nearby, the Californian. As the crew began firing distress rockets into the air, 
Crews aboard the Californian did note the site, but did nothing. Passengers began to push crew further. If we aren't in danger, then why are we firing rockets? Lightoller said truthfully, uh, to get their attention, they're not answering their wireless. In fact, the wireless operator on the Californian was fast asleep. Jack Phillips in the wireless room of the Titanic was fast tapping out codes calling for help. On board the Californian, they certainly saw the rockets from 20 miles off. Captain Stanley Lord told his crew to monitor the situation, but that he was going to bed. Despite counting eight rockets, no attempts were made to turn around. Had they done so, they likely would have arrived around the time the ship sank. As Jack Phillips continued typing out the distress call CQD, he joked with junior wireless operator Harold Bride that he should just try out the new distress code. S-O-S. Bride looked at Phillips and joked, Yeah, go ahead. Might be your last chance to use it. For the first part of the sinking, there was quiet. Lightoller would pick women up and place them into the boats. The lifeboats, designed with rigging that closely copied those used for offloading cargo on shipping vessels, were held by arms that pushed them away from the ship. They were then slowly lowered down to the ocean below. After being chastised for underloading the lifeboats, crews attempted to bring back lifeboat 6. Using a megaphone, they instructed boat 6 to return for more passengers. The calls were ignored. Under the deck, additional boats were stacked. These boats, called collapsibles, were only for emergency use. Lightoller figured this qualified. He continued to turn away men who attempted to board, including John Jacob Astor. Astor and his young wife had been hiding in Europe to avoid gossip due to their scandalous marriage. The age difference between the two, Astor was 47 and Madeline 18, was also cause for talk, accompanied by the fact that Astor had divorced his first wife and that Madeline was pregnant. It had caused controversy that they had been hiding from. Astor asked Lightoller if he could accompany his wife due to her condition, but he refused. Astor nodded and walked away. Lightoller was consistent, if nothing else. The only man that Lightoller allowed aboard was a yachtsman, a Major Poochin from Canada. There had been no crewmen around to launch in one of the lifeboats, and Poochin was a yachtsman, so Lightoller allowed him, instead of boarding himself and taking the boat out. Lightoller was going to go down with the ship, like his shipmates. As time passed, anxiety grew. People began to panic and push. With hordes of men and slowly becoming vastly outnumbered, Lightoller decided to go get his gun. The White Star Line provided all officers with service weapons. Lightoller handed them out to his fellow officers and stuck his in his coat pocket. Walking back to the boat, he noted that he heard the band playing and said he wasn't a big fan of jazzy music, but he did appreciate that they helped boost morale in the end. On his return to post, he came across Isidore and Ida Strauss talking. He offered to take her to a lifeboat, but Mrs. Strauss refused. She replied that she and her husband started together and would finish together. 
As he attempted to lower another boat, men began pushing him out of desperation, like animals. And that's when Lightoller lifted his pistol and told them he would throw them overboard. The sight of the gun and the threat stopped the riot and restored order, but as for the gun, it was never loaded. And as for his threats, in hindsight, being pitched overboard would likely not have mattered. The deck pitched and Lightoller had trouble standing upright. An attempt to set collapsible lifeboat be afloat was met with gravity and the boat flipped on its top. There were still throngs of people on the deck, he noted, but in that moment a bulkhead gave way. Many people fell into the dark ocean at the sudden shift of weight, and people who slid fell onto other people, dragging them into the water with them. The clock is starting to tick. These are the last moments of the Titanic. As before, when he got into dangerous and precarious situations, Lightoller becomes almost robotic. After some mental calculus, he realizes he has two options. Be pulled into a crowd of panicking passengers. Or jump. Against every instinct, Lightoller chose the latter. Head first, he dove into the water, yelling in pain. The water was freezing and felt like a thousand knives being plunged into his body. Choking, he realized the revolver in his pocket was holding him down. He aggressively dug it out and tossed it to the seafloor. He continued to remain calm, instructing others to swim away from the ship, but death was reaching for Charles Lightoller. An open shaft near one of the funnels was starting to fill with water. The rush of water into an open hole grabbed him and pulled him under. He struggled, the pressure gluing him to the opening, and at first he panicked, kicking wildly, the pain of his muscles overwhelming him. He was drowning and losing consciousness. The fight began leaving his body to the fate he had sworn to avoid, drowning. The sea is not wet enough to drown me, he had said. It's then that Lightoller hears a loud crack and groan, and then a forceful gush of air explodes him back to the dark surface. In his testimony, Lightoller swears the ship went down whole, despite a cavalcade of opposing testimony, and for many years this was the accepted version of events. It is often not wise to speculate motive in history, but I can't help but feel that I know why Lightoller was adamant about what he saw. Under the water, he heard a loud crack. He describes it in his autobiography, attributing the sound to falling funnels. He makes it back to the surface in time to see the intact stern sink into the ocean. The crack he heard could very likely be the breakup of the submerged bow. Funnels were falling and passengers were piling onto the stern, some falling to their deaths. Lightoller had ended up right next to collapsible lifeboat B, the overturned boat he had been trying to free. But as crowds panicked, he was content for now holding on to the rope attached to the boat. Around him, painful screams filled the air. People were begging the lifeboats to return. To no avail, they did not want to risk being swamped. We'll wait him out. Wait for what? 
death. Lightoller called the sound of the dying an utter nightmare. Another funnel fell, narrowly missing his head by inches, but striking others. Lightoller noted in a later inquiry that a U.S. senator asked him very stupidly if the falling funnels had hurt anyone. Under less tragic circumstances, the question would be amusing. The lights, kept on for most of the sinking, suddenly flickered. They had been kept on thanks in part to 35 engineers who stayed below deck. The electricity also made it possible for wireless operator Jack Phillips to send messages out till the very end. None of the engineers survived. All 35 perished. The stern pitched and quickly sank in a perpendicular position with people still clinging on to the rails until she disappeared into the water. She took with her Captain Smith, Chief Officer Wild, First Officer Murdoch, and Builder V. Thomas Andrews. She's gone, someone yelled in the darkness. The statement was followed by screams and cries of disbelief. But there was no time to dwell in tragedy. Lightoller climbed on top of Collapsible B, which was swamped with people. One man was striking those who tried to climb on board. But Lightoller took charge before the boat could sink. The pain of the cold water crept up his legs, and minute by minute, some would fall dead from the side of the boat. If men weren't drowning, they were freezing to death. Using his core center of gravity to determine which way to shift, he corrected any incline by telling those aboard to lean left or right for hours. While in the water, Lightoller found wireless operator Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. In his account, he got them onto the boat, but Jack was weak. You see, Jack had stayed up the night before fixing the wireless, and had he not, the ship undoubtedly would have taken more people with her. But he was exhausted, barely holding on. He gave Lytoller the coordinates of the Carpathia as well as an estimate of the time of arrival, but he couldn't stand. He held on till daylight and then fell into the water. Lytoller held on to Jack's jacket to keep him afloat and tried to force him to keep talking, to stay awake. Eventually, he stopped answering and slipped quietly into unconsciousness, and Lytoller had to let him go. Jack Phillips was 25 years old and had just celebrated his birthday on board the ship with a small celebration of crewmen, including Lytoller. Using his whistle, Lytoller caught the attention of one of the lifeboats nearby. It was clearly the high pitch of an officer's whistle, so the boat turned around. Thirty men survived aboard collapsible lifeboat B. The waves were starting to rise, and Lightoller believed the boat was beginning to sink. He said that none of the others had known how close to death they had been. The thirty climbed aboard other lifeboats as the welcome sight of the Carpathia appeared on the horizon. The crew of the Carpathia swung into action, hoisting up the survivors one by one and pulling them aboard. And it was there that Charles Lightoller climbed onto the ship, the very last person to be saved. The sea was not wet enough to drown him. Lightoller was the senior most surviving officer, and thus he had to continue his work. 
700 people made it aboard the Carpathia by his count. Maybe a little over. 1,500 were gone. Many survivors were in denial, demanding to know if it were possible that their loved ones had been rescued by another boat. People were going from deck to deck, eyes searching for their loved ones to no avail. The Carpathia headed for New York. No sooner than they arrived, all officers, quartermasters, and crewmen were served with warrants to testify at an inquiry. Washington, D.C. wanted answers. Aboard the Carpathia, Lightoller had been shocked to encounter a former shipmate. As he was pulled aboard, the official last survivor of the Titanic disaster, he was greeted by a man called Dean, who he had served with many years before. The friendly face provided the first comfort for Lightoller, who, despite all the bravery, was immensely traumatized. The crew of the Carpathia worked to send messages to Cape Race in Newfoundland so that families would receive word that their loved ones had survived. On that account, junior wireless operator Harold Bride jumped into action, metaphorically. Bride was currently unable to walk because his feet were so badly frostbitten they had to be wrapped. The move to notify family members of survival first was met with criticism and controversy. Why had numbers of casualties not been released to the public? It was Marconi Company founder Guillermo Marconi who stopped that criticism. His employee had done the right and humane thing by notifying families first. In the meanwhile, the press was running wild with untruths about the nature of the sinking. The numbers of casualties was markedly different from paper to paper, and in fact, some reporters had snuck on board the Carpathia to pose as survivors to trick individuals into talking. The outcry from the public was intense. Combined with the loss of several affluent Americans, Astor, Guggenheim, and Archibald Butt, of course, close friend of the president, William Taft. But was a top-ranking military aide. So the fact that the American government immediately demanded an inquiry should be surprising to no one. But Lightoller was disdainful and angry. What cause, he asked, did the U.S. government have to investigate the loss of a British ship? Effectively kidnapped and placed with his surviving shipmates into a boarding house in D.C., Lightoller stewed. He wanted to go home to his wife and young children. In the press, J. Bruce Ismay was being crucified, labeled a coward for jumping onto a boat. Some papers even called for murder charges against him. The inquiry was led by Senator William Smith. Smith was out for blood, and Lightoller was unamused. Smith grilled him on the trial runs, the situation was serious, but Lightoller eventually found himself almost amused at the way the American knew nothing about ocean liners, but insisted on leading the questioning. Smith held up a life vest and drilled Lightoller, asking if he had worn one. Lightoller said he had. Have you ever been into sea with one of these? Smith asked. Yes, sir. Where? From the Titanic, sir. In this recent collision, Smith asked. Lightoller looked cross. 
Of course, in the most recent collision, the only one the ship had ever had. Smith then asked when he had abandoned the ship. What time did you leave the ship, sir? I didn't, Lytola responded. Did the ship leave you, Smith asked sincerely, and the question elicited some chuckles out of the audience. The crowd was being won over by Lightoller, whose survival seemed to be ordained, but Senator Smith remained unimpressed, drilling on questions about ice warnings. Lightoller did play company man, remaining slightly evasive on speed and which ships he saw ice warnings from. Lightoller had not known about the message from the Masaba until he pulled Jack onto Collapsible B, where he repentantly apologized for not giving him the notice. In that sense, Lightoller said his calculated answers were to protect Jack. A lie by omission. The questions then shifted a bit to describe the potential horrible deaths of people on board. Is it possible that the Titanic's passengers or crew would have crawled into watertight compartments as a final last resort, as a place to die, Smith asked. The question made no sense. Most passengers would have not known where to find the compartments, and most had headed for deck to fight for their lives. Lightoller responded, I am quite unable to say, sir. Is that at all likely? Smith asked. Lightoller responded, no, sir, very unlikely. Amused by the ignorance, the British press would eventually dub Senator Smith watertight Smith in their coverage of the inquiry. Smith noted that dispatches from the Carpathia showed that Ismay planned to turn the crew around back to London. He asked if this was a ploy of sorts to protect the crew from being interviewed by the American Inquiry Board, at which point Lightoller said no. It was clearly to get them back to England for the British inquiry that was awaiting them when they got there. Smith continued to beat Lightoller about Ismay's comings and goings that evening, but Lightoller said he was far too busy to notice what one man was doing. But the final nail in Smith's coffin came when he asked Lightoller the effect on the ship that resulted from the collision. The room grew silent. Lightoller was tired. Far from home and trying his damnedest to play company man for the company that was throwing him to the wolves. After a long pause, Lightoller smirked. The result was that she sank, sir. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast that covers the people that were God's Favorites, or at least thought they were. Sources for this episode include Patrick Stinson's biography, Lights, Charles Lightoller's autobiography, Titanic and Other Ships, The Sydney Morning Herald, and The Christian Science Journal. And make sure to join us next week as Germany starts trouble in Europe. See you next time, friends.